From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home. Our newest print issue is available now and offers the design industry a roadmap to the future of retail. Find out how brands like Ballard, One Kings Lane, and The Shade Store are innovating to stay ahead, what it takes to design a successful storefront, and what RH's chairman and CEO Gary Friedman has to say about the road to retail success. Subscribe today at businessofhome.com slash subscribe to access the entire issue online. That's businessofhome.com slash subscribe. And now, on with the show. My guest today grew up in a neighborhood in Florence where Italian artisans have practiced their trades for centuries. When they began disappearing, she decided to do something about it. Ippolita is an acclaimed jewelry designer and the founder of the e-commerce platform Artemist. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing her quest to save Italian craft with the power of American-style entrepreneurship. So let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Italy? I'm from Florence. Yes. And Florence is the seat of the Renaissance and the seat of what I call a culture of care. You know, there's a reason that these buildings that are a thousand years old are still standing Mm. because people care about them, you know, and have cared about them for, you know, hundreds of years. And when you grow up there, you really learn, learn to care, learn to pay attention and it's not just the buildings. It's abs- you know, it's everything uh, in your daily life. Right. You know how your community is organized and how your friendships evolve. And and Italy ha- as a culture has always been very focused on those things: friendship, food, family, and not so much on work. <laughs> in the right. in, in the in the way that Americans think about it. Yes, yeah. I mean you work for a living, but you work so that you can live, not the other way around. Right. Right. I, I, I remember you explaining to me about the three Fs and that family, friends, and food was a, was a much bigger priority. Right. And uh, one of the many reasons why I think so many people think, it, well, what a wonderful place to live and, and what a wonderful culture to be part of. But as you say, without the work part. Well, so it's not that they don't work. I mean, no, that's of course. A, of course. But I moved to the United States when I was in my early 20s. And, but I go back and forth constantly because right. uh, I also work there. And uh, my family's there, and my friends are there, and the food's there, so I, I'm constantly going back there. <laughs> yes, there's but a strong it, pull. There's a strong pull. But anyway, uh, as as the years progressed, I saw more and more of the artisans that I was familiar with uh, go out of business. And at the beginning of this trend, uh, and so I would say it's over the last 30 years, I would, you know, you sort of think, oh, they moved, or well, occasionally somebody closes. And then, you know, it just happened at such an alarming rate right. that everybody closed. And I was, and I was so uh, shocked by this because I grew up in the area where all of the, it's called Ultrarno, mm-hmm. where all of the artisans are concentrated. Okay. Uh, and so every single door, you know, had some, you know, a decorative painter or a ceramist or... Uh, a car, a wood carver, or I mean, it was just like chock a block, mm-hmm. and it was so fun to just walk down the street because you could. It was like theater, you know. You could just sit and watch somebody work, you know, on a lathe for two hours, right. you know, if you yeah. wanted to, and it was just so fun. And to see the landscape, the physical landscape, change so dramatically, you know, was I, you know, for me, it was like, oh my god, what's going to happen to the culture here when all of these people go away? Because this is a very tight-knit community that is going to have, you know, a ripple effect on how families are organized and, and who takes care of whom and right. how business is run. Not to mention the fact that this is, you know, these these trades, once they disappear, they're gone. Sure. One of my assessments, I would say, is that more or less, you know, 30, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, People started discouraging, Italians started dis- that had small businesses started discouraging their children from entering the business. Partially because it's a living. You know, it's not, it's, these are not money-making ventures. Right, you okay. Know, they're very, very satisfying on mm-hmm. a personal level, but somehow that wasn't really 
uh, properly weighed, I think, in the in the balance. You know, this is just a hard living, and you should go be a doctor or a lawyer. Right. So they encouraged their children to go to university. So this was like the first wave of a real generation where everybody went to school. And consequently, they did not go into the family business. And not enough was done, in my opinion, from uh, a cultural standpoint, to continuously support the notion that these things matter and that they are viable life choices. You know, this is one thing that nobody talks about. It's like, oh, my God, you're such a loser. You're going to be a, you know, a decorative painter or you're going to be a, you know, like that was the attitude. You so know? that had become the attitude. That had become the attitude. That the perception the was there, there weren't great prospects for continuing to be an artisan. Right. So go off to university, get, get, a, get an education, and, and go do something else. So, so unlike, as you were saying earlier, the, the, the beautiful buildings of Florence have an infrastructure that is protecting them and preserving them. The, the, these artisan and these craftsmen didn't have any kind of organization that was maintaining their future. Sadly, there are lots of organizations. Oh, dear. They just, okay. <laughs> they just do, don't. They don't do a good job? They don't do a good job. Oh, dear. Okay. Uh, they, you know, in typical Italian fashion, get mired in the bureaucracy of the politics of running these organizations. Right. And so they aren't really serving their constituency. Okay. In the years that this was happening, and I was so upset by it, and I would be jumping up and down and, you know, telling my friends, you know, oh my God. Don't you, know, you see what's happening? Don't you see what's happening? Right. Yeah. Uh, we need to do something. Let's okay. do something. You know, and of course, you know, it, it, these problems seem so large that it's like, where do you start? You know, like this is an Italy problem. Right. It's not a my problem. You know, <laughs> on the other hand, I had. You know, I had built a business in the meantime in the United States, uh, a craft, a craft business. Right. I have, a, I have a jewelry business. Exactly. So let's talk about that for a little bit because you actually have a, an extraordinary business and uh, and, a, and a wide following for for the jewelry business that you that you built. And and Ippolita is a is a brand name here in the here in the U.S. So so tell us when you first started to get into to making jewelry. You mentioned that you had come back to the United States. You were living in California, right? And went to university there? I went to university in LA. And um, uh, at that time, I actually had a dance company. So I danced for a few years. And uh, it was a modern dance, a dance and poetry mm, group. Okay. So dance theater. Uh, and at that time, it was the 80s. Um, there wasn't enough of a cultural community, certainly for dance, which already has a tiny audience to begin right. with. Okay. Uh, so I decided to come to New York. Now, when I was growing up in Italy, in Florence, I went to art school mm. and I studied sculpture. So sculpture was my craft base. Okay. And, um, and so when I moved to New York, I very quickly realized that dance was not going to be, you know, viable, mostly because uh, the fundraising part of it was uh, very, very burdensome. Okay, so that and was a big challenge. Yes, I, I reverted back to my craft. Um, okay. And, uh, and I said, okay, so I want to get back into sculpture and figure out how to make a living doing this. You know, I didn't have a studio, and so therefore I got a jewelry bench and put it in my house and said, okay, I'm going to start small, and I'll just work at home. And, you know, the jewelry tools and the sculpture tools are the same except in miniature. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> so, so the craft part was right. there. You're doing much the same thing yeah. right, on a and, smaller scale. Uh, and so in a very self – so I was extremely self-taught. Uh, and I did, Good and for I, you. And I discovered that – I actually had a knack for jewelry, uh, and it was interesting because it had never really been in my wheelhouse mm. at all, partially because when you're growing up in Italy, you don't improvise yourself something. It do not that you can't, it just okay. simply doesn't occur to you. You don't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm a writer, I'm a jewelry designer, I, whatever, you right. know? And when I moved to the United States, I this was something that was very kind of funny to me. I was like, oh, my God, people just wake up in the morning and they think they're, you know, they, they just adopt a, you know. <laughs> they become a, a whole new entity, yes. yes. And But if you produce, you know, nobody will question it. This was like so eye-opening for me. I was like, oh, my God. And 
it just seemed to me like the people here don't understand what enormous advantage this is. You know, this like, oh my God, you're like, what an advantage because you can constantly reinvent yourself. You right. Know? If this doesn't work, I'll do something else. And there's, you know, you don't have the burden of, you know, the shame, you know, of having failed. You're, there's you're no just, stigma. There's to, no stigma yeah, attached to it. You just move on. You just move on. Reinvent yeah. yourself anew. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I'm a jewelry designer. You're a jewelry now. designer. <laughs> There you go. And um, you've got the jewelry bench. You're, you've got the equipment. You're making jewelry. You're a jewelry designer. <laughs> so okay, now all I need is a customer. Yes. So um, I just uh, moved to New York, and um, and somebody said, "Oh well, you should probably go around and look at some stores, and you know, see what's out there." <laughs> Good advice. Good it advice. seems sure. See the landscape. So uh, so I, in fact, I did that, and I went around all the stores in New York, and and I thought, oh. This is kind of easy, you know, because every, every store has a very clear identity. You know, right. Bergdorf's is, you know, this kind of woman, and mm-hmm. Barney's is that kind of woman, and, you know, Ann Taylor's that kind of woman. And, you know, and you can really see, right. oh, these are, if I have to, in you know, interpret a trend, obviously this woman wants one thing and that woman wants another. But in all of these sort of stereotypical sort of um, identities that I had sort of categorized all Mm -hmm. these, you know, stores and therefore, you know, customers, I was missing myself. I was like, okay, I'm not one of these women. Right. You know, where's the jewelry for real people here? You know, where's the fine jewelry? And because I, I came from a you know, a tradition of fine jewelry in culturally. One of the sort of habits of Italian people is, you know, fewer, better things. Mm, And so you invest in something and then you have it for your whole life. Right. And so it really has to answer to many needs because you're going to have it for your whole life. I developed very, very early on a design model, which is really also a business model, which is cool enough to covet and classic enough to keep. Huh. Okay. So everything that I do has to answer to these. Love it. To these two ideas. Right. Meaning it has to have that, you know, that 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 desire factor. Like, yes. oh my God, I don't need it, but I have to have it right now. <laughs> and also that, but instantly right after that feeling of oh. But it's classic enough that I feel very comfortable spending the money right. because I know that it'll, you know, I'll love it ten years from now. It's going to be a great investment. Yeah, yeah. So I I built a business based on that idea. So this sort of brings me back to my artisans. So as okay. I as I um, was witnessing this this dramatic change in in the you know the artist the artisan landscape i thought okay i i i can do something about this mm. because i'm across the ocean and i have enough perspective to see it's happening but i couldn't get any attention from anybody uh when i was over in italy and i was talking i started talking to you know first the trade organizations right so the aforementioned trade organizations you yes. you went to them and, and i said look i have been working in luxury in the united states for many many years right and i know that the customer for these for these products exists not only that but there's a built-in appreciation for everything italian so i can help you make the connection and sadly there was no uh preparation okay of anybody that could clearly understand this opportunity right. and you know help me put initiatives together together with them mm. you know you would talk to one person that one person never had the authority to decide anything and they would send you somewhere else and okay. then you or you'd talk to the person at the top and they would say great initiative you should do something about that go off and do it on your <laughs> yeah, own yeah so yeah. i was like yeah what a, that's what i'm coming to you for <laughs> yeah i i thought okay well part of the problem here is that Kids, the leaders of tomorrow, hmm. need to be sensitized to how important this is to the culture. So I went to the business schools. I went to Bocconi and I went to Luis in Rome. Okay. And I said, we need to put together a curriculum here that is a business school curriculum that integrates uh, hands-on learning with their normal curriculum, with okay. business studies. And, we can, and I built a curriculum uh, based on problem-solving skills because everything that I I feel that I've learned about running a business mm. I've learned because I, I I have spent so many years problem-solving with my hands right you okay. know and there's certain kind of 
thinking on your feet and um, a certain kind of, I don't want to say street smarts kind of, that you acquire Mm. when you physically do things that you don't have and you don't understand if you don't physically do it yourself. Initially, there was resistance like, oh, do we really have to go carve cameos, though? Can't, right. can't, can't we just go to a museum? And right. I was like, no, you actually have to go you know, carve the cameo. And because you will walk away, that kid will walk away from that experience thinking, you know what, I've learned a lot, read a lot of books, mm. but you know, even if the world falls apart, I know how to carve a cameo. Now I understand a process right. and something... Well, actually, it's just like the certainty of knowing how to do something. You know, like it gives you a certain kind of place in the world. So while I was working on that on that program on that academic curriculum, okay, program, yeah, the artisans they were going out of business. So they were going out of business even as I was even as you were sending them new as I was sending them new recruits to help their business. I mean, it was crazy. So. So then it, it just kind of dawned on me that, like, oh, my God, wait a minute. The problem is much bigger than, you than, even I, realized. than, I, than even I realized. Yeah. So we need to step in and we need to do something right now that is going to keep these people in business right. first. And then we can go back and revisit the academic, you okay. know, the academic role. At that point, I had talked to many millions of people, and I thought, okay, forget that. I'm, I'm going to do this American style. I'm going to you know, take a leave of absence from my business. I'm going to set up shop and I'm going to create a platform uh, that, you know, basically a website that does all the things that they don't know how to do, which is sell and market their story, their product, their talent, uh, and hopefully keep them in business right you know so so give me a, an idea of a time frame here so so you've decided roughly in 2013 2014 you've decided you're going to uh, take a break from your american jewelry operation and and really move back to to florence was it was it full first i moved to florence okay. but then very very quickly i realized i had to be in milano you had to be in milan okay because milano that's where finance uh and and then just in general uh professionals Mm. so if i needed to create a professional organization i needed to be in a place where i could find talent it was kind of we put together a dream team honestly and and then worked very very hard and at the beginning though there was a lot of discovery because i wasn't entirely sure where we were, you know, in the in like maybe are they all out of business and and we're actually too in, late in terms of the artisans that you were rushing in to, to to save, yeah, to save, right? So so you had convinced this team that you brought on this dream team, as you say, uh, that you collectively you were going to build this this website that was going to make available the the products that these artisans were producing to the entire world, basically, to create an e commerce site for all of this incredible talent that you were hoping to, to save from, from Italy, yes? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the big idea mm. is uh, you put all these small artisans online, they start selling globally, right. and then they start selling so much that they have to hire young talent. Right. They pass the talent on, and therefore the trade is preserved. Yes. So they so, build and grow their business first, and then they and then they continue the business on with the next generation, was right, the, is right. the hope. And so the it was both an economic and a cultural mission uh, in one, right. and you solve one by solving the other, you know, so you create cultural continuity by creating business. And, and beyond the immediate inner circle that you brought in, as you started to sort of share this idea with with the Italians, did they understand this? Could they? Could they? <laughs> no, no. I not, guess my answer is all. there. Okay. Not at all. Okay. I mean, it was. I mean, it was very, very. I would say, kind of funny, humorous uh, at the beginning because we didn't even have anything to show. Right. So it was all talking. Yes. Imagine there's going to be a website, and you could just you know see their eyes glaze over because nobody believed really that you could sell anything online period let alone something special that was handmade that would come you know across the ocean you know without having 
you know, had any physical experience of the thing itself. So, so even just a few years ago, they were skeptical about online e-commerce in, in general. They didn't, they didn't think you could sell their products that way. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And honestly, there were a lot of question marks. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure that people would feel like waiting mm. because here in the United States, you're very um, accustomed to measuring satisfaction by how quickly things are delivered. Right. So, you know, beyond the fact that, no, you really want that thing that you're ordering, uh, it's yes, but can I get it tomorrow? You know, like that's an integral part of the, you know, of the shopping experience. So therefore, uh, that was a question mark. As it turns out, people are not only willing to wait, but I think the experience acquires greater value if they wait. And that was a big surprise. Another big surprise was I wasn't sure if people would buy furniture or big, heavy, expensive things, right. you know, without, uh, you know, from somebody who they've never heard of through a website they've never heard of uh, and wait, you know, and wait three months to get it. So I had skewed the assortment towards tabletop and ceramics and things that were easier, I, right. I thought. And then... What we found out pretty quickly was that, in fact, the things that people were looking for were the more unique, the more special, mm-hmm. the important, you know, the the important pieces. And that was very interesting because we had to completely shift, you know, our assortment thinking and, right. and you know, go back into the hinterland of the countryside, you know, looking for artisans that made... You know, the, things that people hadn't seen or, or would, yes, yes. Yeah. okay. So, and then there was the logistics attached to everything, which was incredibly complicated. So sure. the first year we really spent building the website and figuring out the logistics because we were shipping marble tables and Venetian glass chandeliers and, you know, delicate artwork. <laughs> so yes, it was and, so, and, and, and wild what, gamut. what was the infrastructure that was in place in, in Italy to, to help you with all of this logistics? I mean, we how built were you? it. We built, built it. it. We built it, and we have uh, freelance photographers in every city. Okay. Uh, you know, we basically had to do absolutely everything. The artisan has to do what they do best. You know, once I started looking into the logistics, I understand why they don't, you know, ship worldwide right. and do other because right. the logistics are incredibly challenging. Incredibly challenging. And and expensive and and yeah, and everything has to have a certain level of beauty in the right. experience and that's also very important. I mean, everything about the experience even though it's a website mm. and so it's a virtual experience it has to be beautiful. Therefore, uh, the curation had to be, you know, had to have a point of view and the experience had to be beautiful in and of itself when you're on the website. And in order to do that, you have to produce it. You know, right. you, you can't possibly make a marketplace easily without first creating a structure. So you, in other words, had to control every aspect of it right. in, in order even to deliver that. Even the production of the assets, meaning taking all the pictures. Right. And so okay. even though people make beautiful things, they don't necessarily know how to photograph them. Of course. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that, was, uh, that was quite challenging. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it sounds very challenging. So was there a moment that you can recall? Was there, was there, was there an artisan that you explained this to and they, and they understood it and they wanted to participate in the project? I mean, was there a moment where you realized Oh, this is going to work. I am going to be able to do this. Yes, uh, I think uh, I spent most of my time recruiting in Florence initially because okay. that's the city I knew best. Right. And what I realized is that you had to talk to them twice. First, you have to go and introduce the idea to them, mm-hmm. and they kind of shut the door on you. <laughs> and then you have to go back when they've had a little time to think about it. Right. Even the next day. Okay. And say, you know what, I'm a craft person too. Mm. I totally hear you. I know your pain. Right. You know, because they're looking at you thinking you don't know what you're talking about. And if you can properly communicate that you understand what what their problems are because you know them deeply yourself, mm. they are willing to trust you. And once I understood this, that, that it had to be sort of a two-prong approach, <laughs> then I kind of got a formula down, and then I recruited everybody. Got it. Okay. And so 
I was, uh, but being a craft person myself, right? Was so that gave very, you a lot of credibility. Was was critical because yes. you could say, look, not only do I understand it, I've done it, right? You know, and so therefore you have, you know, an experience of success that you could point to. So it was, uh, you know, it was great, and uh, and I definitely after the first. 30 or so Mm -hmm. I thought okay I can do this you know and I can do it at a faster clip you know and I can right now I'm starting to understand okay so now you're starting to see some scale and a group of people have signed on and and at this point how far along is this is this website so when we launched with 60 artisans okay and at the beginning I was very insistent on really doing a full-on immersion experience with every single artisan meaning we do a little documentary oh my goodness and okay. we do you know uh interviews right. long interviews and because all these artisans have amazing stories you know it, it's just like a novel every yeah. single time you yeah. talk to them every another interesting thing about how italy is structured it, it has 20 regions Every region has about 10 cities, and every city is different. And so, therefore, it's very interesting to, to, to go you know, north to south hmm. and to see how the a same trade is completely different, not only north to south, but you know, city to city. And you see that you know you can trace the the reasons you know because they have to do with the territory you know that because the earth this is the, the soil that's yeah, available this is the to soil them that's right. available yeah. and therefore it determines how the craft evolves and I thought oh this is so fascinating absolutely but you don't get that unless you narrate it somehow you know uh, and it's just an education thing you know you have to show people and it's like oh well, it makes, of course it makes perfect sense yeah. which means you can't just take this tradition to another region and just start producing it over there. It doesn't work, you know, because there are a whole host of cultural It has to come from habits. here because yeah. there's an infrastructure right, exactly. and a culture wrapped right. around it. Right. Yeah, yeah. As well as physical materials. Sure. You know. And then I realized very quickly that, A, it was kind of untenable to, like, be producing this amount of content around, you know, each one. And also that it was too much, like, people can't really digest that much information. Right, right. okay. Uh, so we said, okay, well, let's create a balance. And as time has gone on, uh, we currently have over 500 uh, artisans and across all categories. Oh, the other thing I have to mention is that I had to decide initially what umbrella I was going to use to you know, what narrative umbrella I was going to use to bring all these artisans together in, in a single website. Right. So I decided on home decor, even though I didn't know anything about home decor, really, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, yeah. you were a choreographer, then jewelry maker, yeah. and became this home furnishings guru. Right. Right? Um, because I could include the largest number of trades. So. Okay. So that, so was, so that was the reason the driver, behind it. Yes. yes. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but we'll be right back. Brush up on the new rules of retail in BOH's winter issue with our first ever retail handbook. Our experts will help you figure out whether or not venture capital is right for your business, how to master performance marketing, why in-store designers can be a game changer for home furnishings brands, and where the biggest opportunities lie in the coming years. Don't miss out. Unlock access to the issue by subscribing at businessofhome.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the show. So tell me how you were in the beginning, how you were funding all of this. So was this, had you borrowed money from people? Were you using your own business in the beginning? I know later you got venture capital and we'll talk about that. But in the beginning, how was all of this happening um out of my own pocket okay so you were self-funding i was self-funding i was self-funding because when i you know when i finally decided okay i'm gonna do this i felt i'm late i'm late you know like if i don't start right now you know it might be too late okay so you felt an urgency around the the timing of things the artisans were already going out of business and you thought if i'm gonna get in there and save italy right then i've got to get going right now right now okay yeah and i and i honestly (laughs) you know i don't know how but i didn't really think it through (laughs) 
<laughs> Imagine that. Yes. Yes. I didn't think it through because it was obviously became very, very, uh, you know, costly very quickly. Yes. Uh, building a website. Yes. yes building a website and, and hiring building this team. a team yeah. and, you know, f- having a physical space and opening offices and, yeah. and creating a network of freelancers. I mean, obviously it was a lot. Yes. And, um, but, you know, I have a, I have a very strong belief in instinct and, uh, you know, enthusiastic but not crazy you know (laughs) and so therefore and so therefore I thought you know we are gonna find there is gonna come a time when this will all make sense right earlier this year so you got your your sort of series a round of financing right so you you must have been showing some some good traction with the with the business tell me when you started to go out and look for some additional capital well we started uh, I would say a year into it uh, also because I was running out of money. <laughs> right. Okay. You know. Candidly, funds are running low. Candidly. And, yes. You know, or rather, uh, you understand what the run, what the... No, run, of course. You, you saw is. how much money was yes. going to be needed for this endeavor. Right. And, and so we said, yeah. okay, well, let's do this properly and right. really run it like a business. Right. And raising money in the States and raising money in Italy are two completely mm. different experiences. And I thought, oh, this is going to be so easy. Piece of cake. Because the mission is so noble, you know, that <laughs> right. gonna, I'm going to have no problem, you know, enlisting. They'll be dying to give me their yes, money. Yes. You know, wake up to we couldn't find anybody willing to invest because the initial phase is very difficult because it's a, you know, you really need angel investors who are willing to, you know, just invest on a whim kind sure, of. And sure. They have to really believe in, in what you're trying to do. And mostly they believe in the people, yeah. you know, because there's no business yet. So they have to really believe in the people. We developed a very well-rehearsed charade. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, not, you know, it wasn't invented. It was just very well rehearsed. You yes. Know? Uh, you got very good at telling the story. And, yeah. so, and so what was the story that you would, that you would tell them? You know, that through, uh, through this wonderful website, we will save Italy and reboot the creative economy. Right. You know, one of the, uh, I mean, I, I truly believe that Italy needs to focus on creativity because they really can't compete in other areas. Mm. You know, they are not, their technology isn't evolved as other countries is. Uh, you know, they can't do it faster, cheaper, you know, but they can do it better. Better, you, you know? right. And they, and so therefore, uh, they, they need to, you know, sort of put the storytelling attention globally on why do it in Italy, because mm-hmm. It'll be better. It'll be more beautiful. It'll be more creatively executed. It'll be, you know, handmade. So that was, I felt, a very good hook Mm. for raising money because I thought, well, I will have to, in any case, these have to be people that are willing to lose the money because it's it's a seed investment. Right. So you have to appeal to their, you know, higher purpose. Except what I found is that in Italy, this is not easy. And uh, so the idea of saving themselves wasn't wasn't resonating enough to to get them to it wasn't resonating enough because there isn't enough uh, activity Hmm. in in the venture world yet right okay. for it to be oh yes i totally understand the formula you invest in 25 things of which five succeed and 20 don't you know like and you get comfortable with that you know with that right ra- ratio with, with the math yeah. that, around all of that as venture capitalists do right. here in the u.s so so eventually you were able to show proof of concept right and you were able to show that you were growing and and so uh, you, you you find some some venture capitalists that are that are willing to there was a japanese firm if i remember or a chinese firm rather that had sort of an italian ceo or something tell me about that well it was uh yes it's called Nuo capital and this is a very interesting story. So it's a Chinese family office. Mm. And because Italy is, in fact, so uh, alluring to many, many people, then get there and kind of think either, oh, my God, it's a big mess. I don't know how to you know, relate to this country properly. Right. Or okay. I fall in love and I somehow need to help or get involved or you know, become part of this. Right. And so uh, they decided to open a family office in Milano and dedicate uh, a certain, you know, a portion of their of their funds 
to uh, supporting creative endeavors. And their their investment philosophy is invest in a traditional sort of old world, old economy business, Mm -hmm. like a design or furniture business, and then do a small investment side by side in the digital world. So uh, they had just bought a furniture company and um, and therefore were looking for a digital uh, home decor. Uh, this is your perfect partner I waiting know. to happen. I know, I know. It was like a miracle. But, uh, you know, I have to underscore the importance of having the right partners mm. uh, because you have to make sure that you are very careful not to just take the money uh, because that rarely works out. Well, and so often that's people's hesitation with taking on venture capital is they're worried about somebody else stepping in and asserting control or, or, or as you were just saying before, having to meet sort of perhaps unrealistic goals or, or grow much more rapidly than maybe the business is, is capable. Right. I mean, there's a... Now everybody thinks of the of the of the internet as like a miraculous way to grow 500 times your size overnight. Right. You know that everything is scalable at the same degree. Yeah. To the same degree, and that's obviously not true. And it and it's certainly not true in a business like Artemis, where the product is driving everything, and the product still sort of is produced. You know at a human rate right because one of the issues we thought initially is like are what if there's great demand like are we going to be able to supply uh enough product uh you know if we are relying on these individual little artisans and you know and so it was kind of like so you knew you needed to find some some bigger companies some bigger companies right that that, that could meet demand if you if you were lucky enough to to have it right and initially i was hesitant to um approach brands that were already mm. sort of established okay. because I thought the purpose of this website is really to help the people who need help, right. not to help the people who already know how to maneuver. But in reality, you need a little bit of both, mm-hmm. and every, and it helps everybody. Another unexpected uh, consequence of having a website is that it's a very democratic presentation. So when you're looking at the artisans, they all look the same. Right. So you don't know. So it makes the little ones look a little bit more professional, mm-hmm. and it makes the the larger ones look a little more special. Right. So it it's great because it really helps everybody. Right. Okay. So tell us what Artemist is today. Now that you've gone through all of this, right? So we're we're coming to the end of 2018. Uh, so what is Artemist to, today, and how has it positioned itself? Well, I think that it's the absolute authority on beautiful things made in Italy. Okay, that's really our goal: is to make it the singular place where you would go if you want something beautiful made in Italy. We have a very well developed concierge service that helps people navigate whatever their needs are and um, we do a very large trade business because of course the people who understand us best are architects interior designers and therefore it's um, it's wonderful you know basically we would love to solve all your problems you know call us and we will solve all your problems <laughs> right we will okay. have everything custom made for you and um, and this is the beauty of working with living artisans you know that of course they understand that you know the table that they're showing you is not the right size you know they're and since they're making it from scratch it doesn't really matter they can make it twice as big different color it doesn't really matter because they're making it anyway right so you can partner with architects and interior designers and you can you can customize a whole a whole project for them with a particular artisan or a, a variety of artisans right and really that's something that you're you're able to sort of specialize in. Is yes, you can make and, all we, this and we um, we encourage people who we actually have a relationship with once we start working together to just basically express their needs. Even right. if you don't see it on the website, okay. it doesn't mean, because we don't have absolutely everything on the website because there are certain trades that are difficult <laughs> to show, mm-hmm. like decorative painting, for example. We have a host of decorative painters that can do amazing frescoes of different kinds, you know, both figurative and abstract, but that's not a product. Right. So it's hard to show. And that's such a great point. So it's not just that you're selling furniture and ceramics, which we've talked about, but you've also got 
artists that you're representing that, as you say, can be muralists or fresco painters or sculptors. I mean, there's a whole range of, of artisans that you're sort of making available to, to people around the world yes, through yeah. this project. And uh, I, I consider them all artists, even though there's, a, there's an interesting camp divide between artists and artisans. Oh, really? Some of them prefer to be called artists, and some of them prefer to be called artisans. <laughs> Interesting. And so what's the fine line there? In- uh, I haven't quite figured it out yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. Who did you find was your your early customer when you first got going? So you've talked about your growing interior designer business and, and an architect business. When you first started, who who really responded to this in the beginning? It's kind of the people who you might think. Either very uh, wealthy, sophisticated, well-traveled individuals, okay, and um, famous people. <laughs> a lot of famous people. A lot uh, of famous people found yes, you and, yes. and wanted to work with you. It was interesting because okay. uh, so that helps a lot. Yeah, that helps a lot, and they're ahead. You know, that's why they're famous <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because they're kind of ahead of the curve. And um, you know, I think that uh, just um, word of mouth was mm-hmm. very important. Um, uh, our repeat customers is a very, very large part of our business. Uh, really? So, okay. Yes. So that's uh, an important metric. Yes. Very, very. We have a 25% uh, repeat business, or maybe even higher now. Okay. Um, Interesting. Which is quite unusual, mm-hmm. and our average order value is very high for a website particularly. Sure. Do you have so, an idea of what your average order value is? Yeah, it's around 3,000 euros. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's very, very high. Very high yeah. If you consider that we sell a lot of plates. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. We also sell a lot of $15,000 credenzas. So right. it's, a, it's a very surprising and unusual uh, f- formula. And the so after the sort of the first wave of individuals, mm. you know, sort of sophisticated individuals who are, you know, somehow finding you and starting to purchase. Then we started to have a trade business pretty quickly because those people are actually looking for, right. you know, looking for these things. And so uh, that was sort of an interesting insight. We hadn't really thought about trade as a as our main customer base, but of course it makes perfect sense. Sure. And, and so we decided to dedicate ourselves to creating a trade program right away. And um, so that's uh, you know that's the evolution. And and you you've had a pop up shop here in New York, uh, which was which was great. Uh, and and I. I was happy to attend and, and see a lot of things. And you had a great setup to show people how the website worked and some of the artisans were actually there. Yeah. That must have been very exciting for them. You know, it's interesting when you have a website, you you don't you forget that you really actually still need a physical space to have some at least one small opportunity sure. to share the product itself. You know, we're, we were constantly debating, you know, do we, because we're also approached about wholesale. Mm. And, you know, then you think, well, do, you, do we really want to change our model? We're not really a wholesale business, right. you know, because then you have inventory and you have all sorts of different, you know, a whole different set of problems. So we decided to do the pop-up here in New York as an exhibition mm-hmm. as opposed to a store. Being a website with many, many different products, it's hard to say, well, do we focus on plates or do we focus on furniture or do we focus on, you know, what what should we focus on to not look completely, you know, confusing? And and where is demand telling you you should be focusing? So now, furniture. Furniture. Yeah. So, so that's something that's really resonating with people. You know, I think it's possibly also people are spending more time at home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Uh, you know, work, the work um, habits are changing so radically that the home has definitely acquired more focus. Okay. Counterbalancing the ikeas of the world, mm. there's sort of a wave towards, okay, I've got my IKEA set up. I need to start, you know, like the next, the next wave of that is, okay, I want something a little more different, a little more special. Where do I go look? Right. And and do you see the business having a, a physical presence longer longer term? So I know you, you did a pop-up in London, if I recall. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, I, I actually do. Okay. I, I, I think that having a scene that people really appreciate uh, a physical, you know, manifestation of some mm-hmm. kind, whether it's just a permanent exhibition or a changing exhibition of some sort. Right. 
uh, that they do appreciate being able to go touch and feel the product mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, even though it's a different product than the right. one they're interested in. You know, just to understand. But the, it gives them an idea yeah, of, of the, the level of, of work that that you're involved with. Yeah. So, so you think there'll always be some kind of physical representation of, of what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, our idea is to actually have a traveling pop up mm, uh, in okay. different cities. It's interesting to think about how you could create a model that merges both digital and online and offline Mm -hmm. sort of economic realities. Well, and you were talking earlier about inventory levels. So in general, you're not housing inventory. Perhaps you are with some of the tabletop items. But, I mean, furniture pieces, I'm assuming you're you're not building too much inventory, or or maybe you are. You tell me. No. So we're we're not building inventory, (laughs) but the artisans have started building inventory. Okay. And this is one of the great things about the nimbleness of the Italians, which I think is another sort of aspect of their creativity. One of the the problems that we uh, encountered at the beginning was that even though the, the craftsmen had amazing talent, the taste level was somewhat out of sync with the current, you know, taste because they're kind of isolated, right. which is the problem, you know? <laughs> right, okay. And so they just weren't sort of keeping up on the trends and... and right, 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 okay. And so their, their product was a little out of sync. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- one of the things that I concentrated a lot on at the beginning was really helping them create some products that were a little more on trend right. with what's happening with taste. Once they start selling... Mm-hmm. They're, they immediately start producing things that, you know, resemble somewhat what they just sold. Got it. And then their sales improve. And so <laughs> they get better and better, but relatively quickly. Okay. So this is an anno- So this is very, very different from other places, you know, where I've worked in the world, uh, you know, that this nimbleness mm-hmm. of, you know, if sort of self-evolution, you right. know, um, in taste around their craft because Mm -hmm. it's something they know so deeply and so profoundly that they're able to evolve at a at a faster clip and that improves sales so then they started saying oh wow of this you know i have 10 things on the website of these two things i sold 10 Mm -hmm. and of these eight i didn't sell any so i'm gonna make you know a lot more things like these two that i sold and i'm going to have them available at least you know, in a depth of one, you know, right. to ship right away. Okay. Once we started changing our shipping windows to available to ship right away, their sales improved. Sure. So uh, we have now na- we now encourage uh, the artisans to be cognizant of this. We don't necessarily say you know you should invest in uh, producing one of everything. Right. But we do make them aware of you know of the dynamic so that. If they want to participate in the faster growth, they actually have an opportunity. And are you able to sort of give them an idea of what people are looking at on your site or what people are responding to? I mean, do you, do you share some data with them to give them some insight? Yes. I mean, we share it to the degree that it's relevant mm-hmm. to them. Sure. Um, I'm a big, I'm an oversharer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like I like to share everything. <laughs> Uh, you know, sensing that about you. Yes. You know, with that said, not everybody is 100%, you know, like on it. Sure. Because, you know, people are people. But, uh, but you know, the right. majority. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but what you had hoped was going to happen is already starting to happen. Yes. People are becoming better business people in, in sort of the American sense of, of, of that. Uh, and they are starting to, to, to build up their businesses, and, and perhaps they're hiring some, some new people as well, and new people are getting trained in their, in their craft, it sounds like. Yes, yes. And have you gotten a, a, a positive response now from the Italian government or some of the trade organizations that perhaps you went to visit with early on in the project? Have you people know, noticed I that you've been doing uh, it? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of press in Italy. Right, uh, okay, you know, Because, think. of course, everybody loves a winner. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's that, too. Yeah. Um, 
And what's been very satisfying is that a lot of companies that turned us away initially mm. are now knocking on the door, you know. So okay. whereas we used to recruit 100% of the artisans all the time, right. now people are coming to us because we're starting to be known as the destination. And can you give us any idea of sort of sales volumes or the scale of this now? I mean, what do you, what do you tell people when you... I don't know if we are publishing numbers okay. uh, because we have investors and you right, know, right, we right. have certain, okay. uh, certain but agreements. But, certain agreements. Right, okay. But uh, it is growing, you know, over 100% year over year. So, really? you know, we're, we're, we're super happy about sort of the, okay. the vertical growth so rate. You're, so you're meeting your projections. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. We're meeting our projections, you know, almost to the cent. It's crazy. Really? Yes. Uh, okay. And, you know, and I'm thinking... Are we being too conservative, or mm. are, are we just like growing like crazy? I mean, it's it's a little bit of both. Where does this plan? What does it look like in in a few years? What what does Artemis become? The thing that we've been toying with is well, obviously, this is a problem everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's not just an Italian problem. Of right. course, I started in Italy because <laughs> I'm from Italy, and that that's, was familiar ground, and that was yeah. familiar ground. But why not other countries? Sure. You know, because they have the same exact problem. And in fact, we get, you know, many, many calls from either artisans really? or people who are interested in doing it for their own country. Okay. You know, I, I, I recently spoke with someone who was in Switzerland and is very concerned because the violin makers are going out of business there. Oh, no. And so you're, you're just thinking, oh, my God, you know, obviously there, like, there are many areas right. in which we could expand if we wanted to. But I think that staying focused is... Also, the density of Italy is so uh, unique. You know, at the beginning, I, I, I said I didn't know if there were enough artisans. You know, then you start looking, and they're just like artisans in every nook and cranny. <laughs> you know, there's like the density is so... So there's still so much work to be done, yes. so much opportunity there's, for you, right. even, even just within, within Italy. Within Italy, yes. But your, but your notion of, of saving Italy is really starting to to take hold. Yes, I think so. And I think that the bigger the business gets, the more we will be able to address all the other areas as well, meaning start sort of expanding our reach to be, you know, sort of a greater cultural influencer Mm -hmm. in that sphere Mm -hmm. and possibly change, you know, policy and, you know, and educational sort of directions around the fact that creativity matters. So you can play a, a much bigger role. Is this your way of letting us know that perhaps you'll be running for political office in, in Italy eventually? Uh, not anytime soon. Okay, but uh, but it sounds like you are making a big difference. So that must feel incredibly good for, for you. And and congratulations on what you've been able to, to accomplish and, and achieve. Uh, it, you're, you're so nice to come and speak with us. My guest has been, you say it. Ippolita. Ippolita. See? It was with the O. On the, on the O. Ippolita. Yes. Uh, my guest has been Ippolita. And you are the chief creative officer, is that right, at yeah. Artemis? Yes. yes. The founder and chief creative. Founder and chief creative officer. Well, thank you so much for coming in. This thank was great. you, Dennis. Thank yeah. you. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.